Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to our final study in the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, to me, this has been a great study. As I said at the beginning of our study of Hebrews, Hebrews is one of my favorite letters of the New Testament. It is so full of rich material that is centered upon Jesus and what we have and who we are in Him. And not just who we are as individuals, but who we are as a church. We said that the book of Hebrews was broken down into three different parts. The first part, leading up to chapters 1 through 6, is all about the Son. And it's to set Jesus as God's final word to the world. And especially in this context, God's final word to the Jewish people. That God in times past had spoken unto the prophets to the people, but now he speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. And they compare Jesus being better than the angels, Jesus being a greater Moses, Jesus being a greater Joshua, uh, and establishes Jesus as supreme. The second part we looked at last week, which is chapters 7 through 10, verse number 18. And this is talking about the Son as the perfect high priest. And it's comparing Jesus's high priestly ministry, Jesus's priesthood, and Jesus's new covenant, and Jesus's sacrifice, and Jesus's blood, you get the point, to the old covenant high priest, the old covenant priesthood, the old covenant, uh, the old covenant itself, uh, the old covenant animal sacrifices, the old covenant blood of the sacrifices. And it shows that Jesus is the greater high priest with a greater priesthood, bringing in a better covenant established upon better blood and a once for all final sacrifice never to be and needed to be repeated again. This time we enter into the final section of the book of Hebrews, which will begin at chapter 10, verse 19, and going through the end of the book in chapter 13. And this is all centered upon the church's faithful perseverance or their faithful endurance. As we have established the context of the book of Hebrews, we've established that the writer is writing to a group of Jewish people. Many of them are believers. Some of them are, are hearing the message and contemplating, accepting Jesus. And they're also being pressured into going back into, Jerusalem, into the, Judea, the Judaism and leaving Christ and going back into the law, back into the old priesthood, back into the old sacrifices. And the writer is writing to establish them and encourage them and to warn them even to not leave Christ and not reject the word, the final word that God has spoken to his covenant people. For to leave Jesus and go back into Judaism is to leave God himself. It's to leave the true. It's to leave the reality and go back into the shadows and in the types. Because everything in the Old Testament was pointing toward Christ. So he's writing to them to encourage their faithful perseverance. So after establishing Jesus as the perfect high priest with the perfect covenant, as the perfect sacrifice who perfects the people that he makes holy... He's going to speak to them as a community of believers and speak to them as a community of people who are hearing this message of Jesus Christ. 
So we're going to begin in verses 10, or chapter 10, verses 19, and we want to look at several uh, different aspects here in chapter 10. In chapter 10, we want to see the unity within the community. Secondly, we want to see a warning against the greatest sin that the book of Hebrews talks about. And thirdly, in chapter 10, we want to see the encouragement in the call to perseverance. Yes, even though the writer of Hebrews gives warnings, he's also confident in the gospel. And he's confident in the faith of those who are hearing this, and he gives them encouragement. So let's begin here in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, essentially. Uh, What we have here in verse number 19, he starts in verse number 19. It actually starts in verse number 19. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have this confidence, and what confidence is he speaking of in chapter 10, verse 19? He's speaking of the confidence in Jesus Christ that he has laid out over the past nine and a half chapters. The confidence in Jesus as God's final word, God's final sacrifice, God's final priesthood, uh, God's final covenant. And he's saying, since God has established this New Testament, this new covenant, since Jesus' blood perfects forever those who are being sanctified, since we have been forgiven of our sins and sacrifice for sin, continual sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. He says in verse 19, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And this is an amazing statement that you and I may read over as normal, but the Jews would read it in such an amazing way. The most holy place, as we showed last week when we looked at the tabernacle, was the place of the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil where the high priest could only go in one time a year to make atonement. And he would take the blood of the animals and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. And God would see the blood and have mercy on the nation of Israel for their sins for that year. But this statement here says, because Jesus is our high priest, and he entered into the holy place, not made with hands, we have the confidence that we can enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And what does that mean for us? For us, that means we can come into the very presence of God without fear of Him because we're coming in by the blood of Jesus. We're not coming in through anything that we have. So we can enter into His presence with confidence by the blood of Jesus. We have verse 20, a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. He tore the veil that we can come and have fellowship with God in ways that no other could have fellowship with him in the past. That is his body. His body was broken for us. And we have this great high priest over the house of God. So because we have the confidence of everything that he's laid out, and here's the truth of that confidence that we have here that he summarizes here in verses 19 through 21. He goes with a series of let us. Now in our first series, in our first message in this series, we talked about the let us exhortations. Well now the let us exhortations we see are based upon the sure work of Jesus Christ. And notice what he says here in verse 22. 
Let us draw near to God. Because, we're, because the new way has been opened for us, because He's welcomed us into the holy place, because He's welcomed us into perfect fellowship with Him, because He's welcomed us into His presence, let us draw near unto God. You see, the Jewish concept, you could not get near God. The Jewish concept was you cannot get near God because you yourself are not holy. You cannot go into the most holy place and draw near to God because of your sin. Only the high priest could. So God dwelt among his people, but it was in a tent, sectioned off from everybody else. But now, by a new and living way, through the death of Jesus, the veil has been tore, the way to God has been opened, and now we can draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. He says, let us unswervingly, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he that promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on to good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day approaching. So he's, he's encouraging the people to have unity within the community. Unity to draw near to God. Unity to draw near to one another. So that they would provoke one another to good deeds. So they would not forsake meeting together with one another. And that they would encourage one another. So that's what we see here in verses uh, 22 or really 19 through 25. Then when we come to verse 26, I told you last week we were going to look at this verse 26 because this is a verse uh, that has caused much controversy in the world of the church. Let me read it to you. In reading from the NIV version, Hebrews 10, 26 says this, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. So this section begins through 26 through 31, a warning against what I like to call the greatest sin. Uh, the King James Version says, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Now, in my experience, I have heard from other preachers and I've been told that other people have heard from other preachers, that this verse has been a verse that has been used to tell people that if you go out and willfully sin, that you will lose your salvation and there's no more sacrifice for sin. There's no more sacrifice uh, that, that covers you. I've also heard to say that if a, if a Christian goes on and continually sins and continually commits sin, then the sacrifice for them will be cut off. In fact, several years ago, I had a sweet lady in one of our Wednesday night Bible studies. I was teaching in Hebrews chapter 10, not on this verse, but teaching on a few verses before. And she come up to me with her Bible open in her hand after service and said, I have a question about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. She said, I would like for you to explain that verse to me. And this lady was probably in her late 60s, early 70s. She said, I would love for you to explain this verse because all my life, this verse has been used and I have been living in condemnation all my life because of this verse. So she lived all her life fearful 
of God's judgment that God was going to cut her off if she sinned willfully. If she willfully premeditated sin, then there would be no more sacrifice for her. Let me just say that is an absolute abuse of this verse that, 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 that divorces this verse away from the context, not just the immediate context, but the whole context of the book of Hebrews. I mentioned it was either in our first or second series in the book of Hebrews. I mentioned that sin, when sin is mentioned, most of the time in the book of Hebrews, it is mentioned in connection with unbelief. It's not talking about these sins that we you know, like to preach against. There is talk of some other sins, but it names those sins. But usually when it mentions sin, it's speaking of a specific sin in dealing with the context of the Hebrew people here in the book of Hebrews. And that sin was pointed out in several different of the warnings. And it was also pointed out in the examples that it gives of those who came before And the example was that they fell into unbelief. That they hardened their heart against God and His Word. And they disobeyed Him on on the basis of their unbelief. That they chose to not believe God. The sin, the major, the greatest sin in the book of Hebrews is the willful rejection of the reality in Jesus Christ by going back into the shadows of the old covenant law and its types because Jesus is the fulfillment. So the sin willfully here is to willfully reject the sacrifice of Jesus. In fact, if we were to keep reading, which many people that abuse this verse and take it out of context fail to do, it will tell us exactly what this sin is. So in essence, it's saying if we deliberately continue to sin, if we continue, if people continue to reject the final sacrifice of Jesus, then there are no other sacrifice for sins. He's saying if you leave the final sacrifice of Jesus and reject Jesus, you can't leave the atonement in Jesus and go back to the atonement of the animal sacrifices because they are done. They are over with. There is no more sacrifice for sin outside of Jesus. So if they hear this message and they fall away. Remember we talked about the seeds being sown on on stony ground and seeds being sown by by the wayside and seeds being sown on good ground. Well, if those seeds that were sown by the wayside or those seeds that were sown on thorny ground and stony ground, if they don't take root and people turn from Jesus and reject Him willfully, there's no more sacrifice for sin. So don't let this be a legalistic verse that threatens you that God's going to cut off the sacrifice of Jesus in your life if you go out and commit a willful sin. Because I promise you, everybody, myself included, and you watching, we've at one time or another willfully committed a sin. And if there was no more sacrifice for sins after that, then we all are in trouble. Well, let me just say Jesus' blood is better than that. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. So I'm going to read a little bit further to show you the context 
and to show you exactly what the sin, the willful sin is, where there's no more sacrifice for sins. He goes on to say in verse number 27, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire will consume the enemies of God. So those who are in this category are enemies of God. Verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy. If they rejected the law of Moses, then there was punishment for that. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished? Here's the definition of sin willfully. Who has, number one, trampled the Son of God underfoot? Number two, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them. That's number two. Number three, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. So trampling the son of God underfoot, treating the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing and insulting the spirit of grace That is the sin willfully. It is a willful rejection of the final sacrifice of Jesus. And if you willfully reject the final sacrifice of Jesus, there are no other sacrifices from the old covenant that will atone for your sin. So he's letting them know the seriousness of rejecting Jesus' sacrifice while he's been spending the whole book of Hebrews talking about. So that's the warning of the greatest sin. The third thing we see in this passage is the encouragement to the call of perseverance. After this warning, in verses 32 through 39, he urges perseverance recalling how they received the light while they endured suffering. In doing so, he cites Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through, or verses 2, chapter 3, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. To conclude the section, he turns back to encouragement. Surely, he says, this is not true of you. The writer has full confidence that they will not shrink back, but receive salvation. Notice what he says in chapter 10, verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you received the light in great conflict, full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered with those in prison. You accepted, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you know you had a better and lasting possession. He says, so do not throw away your confidence. He said, you've already received persecution by separating yourself from Judaism and, and receiving this message of Christ. So don't, don't throw away your confidence. He says you need, verse 36, to persevere. So when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what you have promised. And then he quotes Habakkuk. In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. So he's quoting Habakkuk there. So he's talked about this willful sin of rejecting Jesus, trampling the Son of God underfoot, treating the unholy, treating the blood of Christ as an unholy thing, and, and insulting the Spirit of grace by not responding to the Spirit's call. 
He talks about how they've already gone through so much, so don't throw away your confidence in Jesus now. Don't be like those who shrink back. And then in verse 39, he gives this word of encouragement. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So even in the midst of the warning, the writer here is confident that his hearers will persevere and not shrink back. And then he goes on as we enter into chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12. He goes on to give examples from the Hebrews' own scripture about those who persevered by strong faith. So what we have in chapter 11, verse 1, all the way through chapter 12, verse 3, we have the heavenly witnesses. And then we have the ultimate example, Jesus. We're very familiar probably, we're probably most familiar with chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews than we are with any other chapter in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 11 in Hebrews is what is called the Hall of Faith. And it lists all of these Old Testament, Old Covenant believers in God who persevered and pressed for a promise even though they couldn't see it with their eyes. And all of these that are examples never received the promise they were pressing for. What was the promise they were pressing for? The promise they were pressing for was Jesus. And they pressed on and persevered and endured hardship and showed great faith and are commended for that. But yet they never received the promise here on earth. But he's telling these Jewish believers here, you have received the promise. So don't shrink back now. Don't go back because they were pressing forward for something they couldn't see and for something they never obtained in their lifetime. But you now have it. That's Jesus. So now that you have the thing that they were pressing for, don't go back. Don't leave the thing. Don't leave the greater thing, the greatest thing for the lesser thing. Press on in endurance, using these people as an example and Jesus himself as the greatest example. So the greatest encouragement comes from knowing that one stands in a long line of people who have faced similar challenges and met the test. Many ancient Jewish writers told the story of Israel by highlighting specific moments and individuals and locating their own hearers at the end of the narrative. The early Christians often did this with Jesus himself as the climax, as we see here. So what we find is a long list of witnesses to authentic, persevering, enduring faith. We have here, uh, and we're not going to read much in this chapter, but we have by faith, Abel. By faith, verse 5, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. Um, verse 13, notice verse 13 in chapter 11. So he's already named Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and even Sarah. By faith, Sarah. He says, all these were still living by faith when they died. They were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. 
Then he continues, by faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, by faith Joseph, by faith Moses, by faith the people that passed through the Red Sea, by faith the walls of Jericho fell, by faith the prostitute Rahab welcomed because she welcomed the spies and was not killed with those who were disobedient. And then in verse 32, so he names these and he goes on to say, I can list a whole lot more. In verse 34 or 32, he says, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. He says, all of these through faith, they achieve mighty things. They conquered kingdoms administer justice, gain what had promised, shut the mouth of lions, quench the fury of the flames, escape the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength. They became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received their dead back to life, raised again. So these are all miraculous things that happen by those who live by faith. And I thank God for the mountaintop faith or we can live in victory and we conquer, and we, we overcome, and we press forward, and we see God do great and mighty things. And certainly that's one side of faith. But then also there's another side of faith. It's the faith that comes when we don't conquer all. When we don't overcome every earthly obstacle. And that's when he kind of switches gears here in verse number 36. He says, some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. But then it says about them, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. So you had some that conquered kingdoms, administered justice, quenched the flames, escaped the sword. But then you had those who were stoned, who were jeered, left in chains, murdered, without, destitute, wandering around in the wilderness and deserts and mountains. And Faith is equal in both of them. So don't think the one who has everything good has stronger faith than the one who continually faces hardships. That's not the case. In fact, faith is shown in us when we face the most difficult of circumstances. So he's going to encourage these first century believers who are probably going to face more of the latter than the earlier. They were probably going to continue to be persecuted, continue to be ridiculed, continue to be cast out, continue to be killed and martyred. So he's using these as well as an example, not just the heroes of the faith, but the also heroes of the faith that don't get as much recognition, you know, as the as the favorite ones we like to talk about. But he says about them all, these were all commended for their faith, but yet none of them received what they had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together, 
with us would they be made perfect. So he's telling these Hebrews, you are standing in a legacy of faith that actually fulfills the faith of those that come before. That they remain faithful and they persevere, but they never receive the promise. But you've received the promise. You are living in the times of Jesus. You have the fullness and they didn't back off. They didn't turn back. They didn't turn to unbelief. But now that you have the promise, you be like them and not doubt and not turn back and not leave Christ and not leave God's final word for humanity. But you stay strong in faith. And he says about them in verse number tw- chapter 12, verse 1, they are a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. They are cheering us on as we run our race to receive what they only believed about. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. Now, we can put a lot of things there. I think everything that hinders is all these Old Testament, Old Covenant things that that he's talked about before. And the sin, the sin that so easily entangles. Unbelief where the enemy tries to come and steal your faith in Jesus. Now, I, I know this has been preached and we've inserted every sin and every weight here, but in the context of Hebrews, I believe that's what it's talking about. Everything that would hinder us fully entering into the blessing of Jesus, the sin, the same sin as the willful sin, the same sin as the sins he's been talking about before of unbelief where the enemy tries to come and, and tell you that this isn't true. He says, and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. He says, they've run their race. Now we have a race to run. They fixed their eyes on the promise that was coming. They fixed their eyes on their faith in what was ahead of them. Now he's telling them, the believers here, we're fixing our eyes. Not on what's ahead of us, but what's behind us. And what's behind us? The cross. And who's the center of the cross? Jesus. So he says, we have, a, we have heavenly witnesses as our example and surrounding us. And we also have the ultimate example, Jesus. So he says in verse number 2 of chapter 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The NIV says the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It's the author and the finisher of our faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Not the persecution, not the suffering, not the old covenant sacrifices and priesthood. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. And he said about Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, exalted in the heavens. And he encourages the believers here to consider him, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He says, all these were examples of faith and perseverance. And there were many who gave their lives, but yet persevered in faith. And then you have Jesus who endured the pain and the death of the cross the shame of and went ahead anyway 
and he's exalted. So consider him. Keep your eyes on him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's his message in chapter 11 in the first part of chapter 12. Now we see from chapter 12, 4 through 17, learning and growing from suffering. The writer here does not see this persecution that they're facing as a bad thing. In fact, he views it as how a father would discipline or teach or train a child. You know, we're to train a child, we're to discipline our children, we're to teach them the way that they are to go. And he's equating the persecution and the hardships that they're facing as believers with discipline so that their faith would grow and be rooted and be strong and they would learn from the suffering. They would grow from the suffering. They would learn to trust in the suffering. So he says to them, after he's talked about all these people who have died, in your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Yet, even those before have. He says, have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? Now he goes back to Proverbs. And he says here, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those who he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So the writer of Hebrews is equating this suffering and persecution with discipline from a father that helps, actually helps his child to grow and mature. So he encourages them in chapter 12, verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. Look at your hardship as you would discipline. Like God would be treating you as his children. He says, for if you're not disciplined, then you may not be a son because a father only disciplines those who are his. He says, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness or his way as Jesus is our example. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Now, now this is not the picture. Now, let me just clear this up. This is not the picture of an abusive father. Again, these verses have been taken out of context to show, you know, if you do something wrong, God's going to send down all this punishment. And he's going to make you sick and he's going to, you know, cause all kinds of problems in your life. This is not a picture of an abusive father that likes to judge us and give us bad things whenever we do bad. That's not the context at all. This is, God is not an abusive father. This is equating the persecution and the suffering, the hardship they had to go to. God allowed them to go through the persecution and hardship so that they would actually learn and grow and their faith would be proven. This is not, an, this is not child abuse, okay? The discipline of the Lord. The discipline here means the training of the Lord, how you discipline your children. You, you give them structure, you know, you, you teach them what is right from, from wrong. You are training them. And he's saying this suffering and persecution that you're going through is training you. And God is allowing that. He says, now it doesn't seem pleasant, but later on, he says in verse 11, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So he encourages them in verse 12 to strengthen their feeble arms and their weak knees and to continue on. 
And he encourages them to learn and grow from suffering and that you'll be stronger and better for it on the other side. Then he goes into um, a little bit of contrast. He has a little mark in there. We didn't specifically mark this out, but verses 14 through 17, as we see here, the last part of growing and suffering, uh, he encourages them to live at peace with everyone. Uh, He encourages them to let no bitter root grow up and defile them, uh, that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, for we know that Esau sold his inheritance uh, to his brother. Uh, So he's saying, you know, in essence, stay faithful unlike Esau, that sold his inheritance. Don't sell your inheritance. Jesus is your inheritance. Don't don't go back and give away your uh, inheritance. Then he comes to this section in chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, where he talks about the contrast between Mount Sinai and the heavenly Jerusalem. So he concludes chapter 12 um, as with warning and encouragement. And here's another contrast. You know, the book of Hebrews is a book of contrast. So this is a contrast between Mount Sinai, where the law was given, and the heavenly Jerusalem in which the gospel comes forth. So again, law versus grace, old covenant versus new covenant. He says in verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire and darkness and gloom and storm to a trumpet blast and voice speaking uh, words. This is the picture of what happened when, when they received the law in Exodus. When they received the law, the sky was filled with dark smoke and the mountain was as if it was on fire and thunder and lightnings. And if you came near to the mountain, you could die. And in fact, when the law was given, 3,000 people died. He says, that's not the mountain that you have come to. That's the mountain of the old covenant. But he says, you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul in Galatians 4 talks about the heavenly Jerusalem. That is the mother of us all. He says, you've come to thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn. You've come to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood that speaks better, a better word than that of Abel. Abel's blood cried out, from the ground for vengeance. Jesus' blood cries out from a cross in the mercy seat for mercy and grace on people. So he put this old contrast in here between the old covenant and new covenant. And he, again, verse 25, notice in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him that speaks. Again, it's all about Jesus and what he has done. And then he talks about that what everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And God was shaking things up now in the, in the, on earth and in the heavens. And this shaking, I believe, has to do with the temple. And I believe this shaking has to do with what would come forth in a few years in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. God was going to, through the Romans, destroy the Old Testament temple, the temple in Jerusalem. He was going to destroy earthly Jerusalem as it was. Shaking and bringing an end to that old covenant system. 
so that what cannot be shaken would remain. And what cannot be shaken was and is the new covenant. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the heavenly priesthood. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the kingdom of God. And he says we can be sure about the kingdom of God. He says we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So he gives the contrast between Sinai, the old covenant, and heavenly Jerusalem, the new covenant. Further proving his point. Then when we come to chapter 13, we see two sections in chapter 13, verses 1 through 25. These are some concluding exhortations that they are to live righteously for the city of God. There are several concluding exhortations that follow, starting with the theme of love, practicing hospitality, remembering those who are in prison. These were vital components of the life of a church going through persecution. He would talk about uh, sexual relations and money, that marriage must be honored, while freedom from the love of money will lead to contentment. And in all this, trusting God is the key. The community's leaders are setting an example to follow. He talks about the leadership in the church. But ultimately, all things come back to Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in chapter 13, we won't you know, read all of this, but he begins in chapter 13, verse 1, keep on loving one another. Brothers and sisters, show hospitality to strangers or foreigners. Uh, by doing so, you've shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Uh, continue to remember those in prison as if you were in prison, those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were being mistreated. He talks about uh, marriage and the marriage bed pure. Um, he says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he talks about in verse 7, remembering your leaders. Um, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Stay with the gospel. Uh, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace not by eating ceremonial foods. He says, so the way that we're really strengthened isn't by going back to the Old Testament dietary laws. is by being strengthened by God's grace. Um, he says, we have an altar from which those who minister the tabernacle had no right to eat. Again, showing we have it better than those Old Testament saints. He says, and again, he puts this back in here in verse number 11, the high priest carries blood of the animals into the most holy place to offer uh, for sin, uh, but their bodies were burned outside the camp. Also, Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his blood. He says, let us then go with him outside the camp. Let us face persecution. Let us bear the disgrace he bore, for we do not have an enduring city here. Now that speaks a lot. Because the theme of the new covenant is the heavenly blessings. The theme of the old covenant was the earthly blessings. So you had an earthly priesthood, an earthly tabernacle, earthly sanctuary, an earthly Jerusalem. But in the New Testament, he says, we offer spiritual sacrifices. We're, we're strengthened by grace. We, we, are, are, we're, we belong to a heavenly city. Not in, we have no city on this earth. And even today, there are still many, even especially Christians, 
who still look at the things like over in Israel and the temple and the ark and, you know, the priesthood and the land of Israel itself as that's what it's all about. That's the old covenant. He's telling these Jews, we have no city here on this earth. Our city is a heavenly city. The new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. So because we have no enduring city, but we're looking for a city that is to come, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise from the fruit of our lips. We as priests, let us offer sacrifices, but not with animals and blood and and bulls and goats, but with praise. Uh, He encourages them to have confidence in their leaders and submit to their authority, for they watch over you and must give an account. Uh, and let their work be a joy and not a burden. And then, and then the writer here says, pray for us uh, that we would have clear conscience. And I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon, that I may come to you soon. And then he ends with, some, uh, with a benediction. This is a beautiful benediction. He says, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, Equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he ends with that benediction and then just some final, some final greetings. But what a masterpiece the book of Hebrews is. I put it right up there along with Paul's writing in the book of Romans. I believe it is that important because it establishes who we are as believers in the new covenant. So three things I want to leave you with here from the book of Hebrews. And these, this is kind of the big picture. There are three major things that we need to see from the book of Hebrews. Number one, we need to see Christ and who he is all throughout the book of Hebrews. You know, the Theology world calls it Christology. It's the pictures of Jesus, the descriptions of Jesus, the comparisons of Jesus with the Old Testament is so vital. Jesus is at the center. So number one, Christ. Number two, it shows us how we are to interpret the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant was not given to you or I. It is not our covenant. Hebrews shows us how we are to interpret the Old Testament and what place that it has. The Old Testament points us to Jesus. It's to be used as a marker to lead us to Jesus. Yes, there are some good things in the the Old Testament. Yes, there are some imperatives. There's wisdom books and all of this. But the Old Covenant is not your covenant. It was given to bring people to Jesus. So we interpret the Old Testament in the light of what is revealed through Christ in the New Testament. That is so important on how we interpret the Bible. It shows us the way that we are to read the Old Testament. And finally, the third thing is Christ's atonement for our sins. How he's the one sacrifice for sins forever. Hebrews emphasizes the sacrificial death of Jesus as God's way to reconcile humanity to himself. How the sacrifices of the Old Testament were temporary. 
how they were partial, how they were not final. But Jesus' sacrifice is. The writer of Hebrews shows us that the Old Testament sacrifices can make one outwardly clean, but can never cleanse people on the inside. They had to be repeated over and over again. But Jesus' own blood brings about a redemption that lasts forever, which can cleanse our conscience from dead works, free us from guilt and the consciousness of our sins. We're under the old covenant, our sin, the sin was ever before the people. Sin, 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 separation, 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 punishment, punishment, punishment. Under the new covenant, it's righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. Cleansing, 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 grace, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So that we can serve the true and the living God with pure hearts, full assurance of faith, knowing that we have in Jesus God's final word spoken to humanity. And we can receive the promises that many that have come before long to see. That's what you and I are living in, the reality of the Son who is greater than all. Thank you for joining us today. God bless.